Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Napoleon Assist. It's the penultimate day of War to be Remembered, and whilst the Voices from the Battlefield series continues, today we have the last of our interviews. But boy, are we going out with a bang. I'm joined by Jacqueline Reiter and Beatrice de Graaf, both hugely respected scholars in the field. It's great to have you on. How are you both? I'm good, thank you. I'm good as well, but it's hot here in the Netherlands. So tell us a bit about both of your research interests first. Jacqueline, start us off. Well, um, my main uh, research interest is actually in the interplay between politics and the military in Britain during the, uh, uh, the period that um, the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, um, uh, which is good because Waterloo is a particularly good example of this overlap. Um, although I have to admit that I usually focus on uh, Britain's less successful military experience. Um, talking about victory is going to be something of a departure for me. Um, I published a biography of John Pitt, second Earl of Chatham, um, in 2017. Uh, he, of course, bungled the infamous Walcheren expedition of 1809, but he's pretty much gold dust for me because he's a politician and um, uh, soldier. Uh, I'm currently researching Sir Hume Popham, a naval captain who's best known for launching the uh, unauthorised British invasion of South America, but he's also a man with a surprisingly prominent role in British military planning. Popham was a bit of a, a, a nutter, is, is my untechnical term of um, referring to him. Is that, is that fair? <laughs> it was a loose cannon, yes, very loose cannon. <laughs> very interesting chap, um, not, not, not one to... Um, um, not very humble one either, so it's very interesting to uh, pick apart what he's saying and, uh, and work out whether he's telling the truth half the time. <laughs> and Beatrice, what about you? What are you working on? Yes, well, I'm a political historian or an international political historian, so uh, I'm very much interested in how collective security works, uh, under what conditions state work together and what happens uh, if they do. And uh, I did quite a lot of work on the 20th century, Cold War history, and uh, even 21st century. But over the last uh, seven, eight years, I've also studied the 19th century because I felt that much uh, that's being said on international cooperation, collective security, fight against terror, is very much presentist, is very much dominated by political scientists. And if you go back in history, for example, study in more detail what exactly happened after a huge war, such as the Napoleonic Wars, this sortie de guerre moment, which is such a rich moment in time. So many things happen and so many things also have got lost in history. So in 2018, I published in, in Dutch a book, it's called um, uh, Against Terror, and it will come out in September this year, 2020, with CUP, and it's called Fighting Terror After Napoleon. And I'm discussing and presenting a whole kind of, 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 of body, uh, the Allied Council, that uh, worked with each other. It 
combined all the experts and state leaders of the um, uh, Quadrupole Alliance, but also the secondary and the third rank nations were also invited to sit in committees, discuss the post-war peace and the security settlements. And they did so much more that has been contributed to them in the monographs on the restoration era, which was not so much a restoration, but far more a transformation, particularly in the realm of international uh, collective security. That sounds absolutely brilliant. I need. Can we pre-order a copy yet? Uh, I'm. I'm not sure, but it it won't. I'm very happy to say that it won't be such an um, totally ineconomic book to buy. It. I think it. It. It will be a. It. 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 it well, won't be cheap, unfortunately, but but it won't be very expensive. I think between twenty or thirty euros or something like that, which is okay. And I'm very happy that CUP uh, wanted to do that. That's fantastic, so especially for CUP. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, let's hope they, they stick to this in these times. Fantastic. Well, let me know when details um, come through of when we can order, and I will see that word goes out to our listeners. Thank you. Let, let's, let's dive straight in. Let's talk about Waterloo, and, and particularly its legacy, which is our focus today as we start to wind up Waterloo Remembered. Quite often people feel that they understand Waterloo's legacy. They see this big climactic battle which permanently ends Napoleon's career and it appears to establish peace on the continent for the next century, which is debatable and we might want to look at that in a moment. But first it's, it's worth talking about the immediate aftermath of the battle because when everyone woke up on the 19th of June, they didn't necessarily know that Waterloo had been the campaign-defining clash that it eventually proved to be. What was the much wider political and diplomatic situation in June 1815? Yes, well the interesting thing is if you compare Waterloo uh, to for example Leipzig, the Völkerschlacht, there were far more uh, armies out there at uh, the Battle of Leipzig in October 1813. Uh, in Waterloo there were uh, in the end 30,000 people were victims of the war, but uh, in Leipzig it, it, it was the double of even the triple amount of that, and uh, far more armies swarmed to Central Europe to fight that war than there were gathered in, in Waterloo. So by, by all means it was the last big conventional warfare with so many troops around one theatre of war, but Leipzig had been far better, bigger, and also the battle that took place a year before in, in, in Paris and in France was also quite big. So why was Waterloo so special? It's not so much that it was a very specific kind of battle, but it was more the symbolic value of it. Uh, the countries of Europe had thought that they had conquered Napoleon, sent him to Elba, and uh, were got rid of him and had concluded all kinds of peace treaties, um, repairment peace treaties. Uh, it was also quite quite liberal to France. It could be restored in its, 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 its earlier splendor. And then Napoleon came back. And uh, I call this a period of terror because not just the red terror of the French Revolution or the white terror of the Restoration Era, but also the terror of Napoleon returning. It's hardly understandable only if you read the, the memoirs and the diary entries that are there, for example, by, uh, by Metternich in Austria, who woke up to hear about Napoleon's return. They were aghast. And no one had ever experienced this. And, and within two weeks, and the Duke of Wellington was very much... Um, uh, uh, instrumental in this, they gathered a whole alliance of not just the main great powers of Europe, the, the four who created Quadrupole Alliance afterwards, but also the other ones. They created the, the, the alliance of the 25th of March, 1815. And I think this alliance, the Vienna Treaty, which uh, as it was called before the final Treaty of Vienna was concluded in June, 1815, this is also called the Vienna Treaty of Military Solidarity. This laid the groundwork for a pact of securing peace, not just in fighting the war against Napoleon together, but also waging peace afterwards. So they promised each other, we won't do unilateral peace agreements with Napoleon, and we won't go away from France, we won't leave France to its own devices until we have secured all the war aims and, and goals that we now are designing together. So this 25th of March 1815 treaty, which led into the Waterloo battle, it was so important that even many countries who did not, and armies who did not participate in the Waterloo battle, for example, the Russian uh, troops or the Danish troops, even they were handed out subsidy afterwards in order to, to forge 
and to, to bring this alliance together, not just on the fields of Flanders, but also uh, um, beyond that. And in fact, they stayed in France after Waterloo. There was this kind of, of a, a hurry to Paris, and they all came crushing to Paris on the, the 2nd and the 3rd of July, 1815. And then they remained in France, one and a half million troops, they remained in France for the next month's being, and then the Allied armies, the, the army of occupation, stayed in France um, for three and a half, four more years, which was a major revolutionary decision to make that alliance warfare didn't stop when the battle was over. And I think Waterloo marks this important um, you know, turn, turning point in time. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with all of that. I think you um, made some amazing points that even I hadn't thought of. So um, I love the term waging peace. That's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. it did. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I had kind of assumed that Beatrice was going to talk about the European context more generally, and thank you, that's what you did, yay! Um, so I thought I would answer the question from the perspective of Britain, because that was slightly different from everyone else's experience, it's quite radically different actually. Um, and I think uh, Beatrice, one of the important points Beatrice made is that when um, Napoleon landed in France in March 1815, everyone had already thought the war was over. Um, and there'd been the Treaty of Paris in May 1814 that had sent, well, that particular treaty didn't send Napoleon to Ruralba, but um, uh, the Bourbons were back on the French throne, France was cut back to its 1792 borders, everything seemed to be, well, uh, the fighting was done. Um, and uh, Britain had been reasonably central um, in this peacemaking pro process, um, but had spent most of the previous decade in diplomatic isolation, which uh, put her at a little bit of a disadvantage. Um, she was unfamiliar with her allies, many of them distrusted her, felt she only looked after her own interests. Um, for a while in 1813, it had even looked like um, peace might be concluded without Britain, which would have been disastrous. Um, but um, in the end, Britain was allowed to negotiate and importantly finance the Sixth Continental Coalition, which Beatrice has just been talking about. Um, according to the historian John M. Sherwig, Britain spent about £10 million on her allies between 1813 and 1814 alone. Um, I calculated that this morning using the uh, Bank of England inflation calculator. That's apparently £6 billion today. Um, and this was important because Britain, as Beatrice has already said, hadn't really participated militarily in Napoleon's defeat. Um, they weren't at Leipzig. Well, there were 145 rocket troops at Leipzig, but I don't think they made a great deal of difference. Um, uh, they had participated in the march to Paris, and of course, Wellington had been present in the peninsula since 1808. Um, but um, although all this meant that Britain had a reasonably strong role um, at, uh, in negotiating the Treaty of Paris and at the Congress of Vienna, they, they, they weren't in the commanding position that they would become a year later, and I'm anticipating the answer to a future question already, um, so I won't say any more about that. Um, uh, Britain did have one advantage which the other continental powers didn't have, which was that the Treaty of Paris had pretty much secured all her war aims. Uh, so she was able to approach the Congress of Vienna as a mediator. Um, uh, the Foreign Secretary, Lord Castlereagh, hoped to negotiate a settlement to guarantee the long-term stability of Europe. Um, we're back to waging peace. Um, uh, but again, I think it bears repeating that uh, the unity of purpose shown by the great powers in turfing out Napoleon in 1814 was the exception, not the rule. Um, the Sixth Coalition had papered over some of the cracks dividing the Allies, um, which broke open again at Vienna. Um, as recently as January 1815, um, Britain had made a defensive treaty with um, Austria and France against Prussia over Saxony. Um, this was, of course, partially a bluff, but it does show that um, there were tensions still there. Um, and of course, Britain's role as mediator was somewhat undermined by the, her refusal to bring the question of maritime rights to the peace table. Um, so, you know, people think of the Congress of Vienna as being a series of balls underpinned by aristocratic opulence, um, but beneath the polished exterior, the knives were out. And I suspect Napoleon was hoping to take advantage of that a bit when he left Elba. In fact, one, uh, the escape from Elba was a shock, a huge shock to the Allies, uh, again, as Beatrice has been talk talking about. Um, 
it did remind them that they had one thing in common, which was that they all hated Napoleon. Um, <laughs> so they immediately reaffirmed the grand aim of long-term pacification of Europe. They formed the Seventh Coalition, um, and this left Napoleon with no option but to act fast and pick off the Allies piecemeal before they had time to come together. There are so many points that I'd love to, to pick up there. Um, I guess the first one is the unity that you just mentioned, Jacqueline. Are you surprised by that unity or do you think that was inevitable and this kind of concept of Napoleon's of being able to divide and rule his former enemies was just fanciful? I, I think that by 18, 1815 it was certainly fanciful. Um, I don't think that he ever had any chance, um, but he had done it before. Um, it's pretty much uh, a approach was pretty much how he won the third coalition um, or defeated the third coalition, excuse me. Um, but um, so it wasn't some, it was something that he might be expected to try again. Uh, and of course he did try it again. Um, but um, the unity itself was uh, something that had come out of years of agonizing and negotiating and um, the British had been trying to form sort of uh, long-term uh, unifying uh, mutual security pact to use a, a modern term since the 1790s. Um, it hadn't really worked but Castlereagh was uh, basing his foreign policy on um, various politicians who'd come before him, um, Pitt particularly, um, also Lord Grenville. Um, so it wasn't a new thing then. Um, it was just really that uh, the circumstances came together in 1813 that made it possible. Um, and uh, in many ways, as I said, Napoleon's uh, escape from Elba confirmed that it was possible by, by bringing them closer together. I would very much like to add up to that uh, because Jacqueline, you said something very nice. You said mutual security uh, as a term uh, to attribute to what happened in 1813, 1815, and you named that um, uh, a quite modern term, but it wasn't. The Treaty of 25th of March, 1815, which I just named to you, it was called the Treaty for Mutual Security. So it was very much, it was very much a term used at the time. And interestingly enough, when Castoray uh, went to Europe in November, 1813, so there was the time and it was great fog. It was quite a difficult crossover uh, to the Netherlands. He came in the Netherlands and it was snowing and had to, had to go by, by, by horseback and in carriage to, to, to Vienna. And he was almost embraced like a brother by, by Chancellor Metternich. And you have to imagine, so it, this completely supports what Jacqueline just said. You have to imagine, and there's a very beautiful term for this. It's coined by uh, Johannes Paulmann, a German historian. He said it was horseback diplomacy. Uh, they did it together over all these years, coalition warfare on horseback, plowing to snow, to marshes, uh, setting up mobile um, headquarters, uh, discussing things with each other. And from November 1813 onwards, actually already starting in February 1813 in Breslau, uh, where, where it all started, um, the, the negotiating and the paying of money to stitch together this coalition, they stuck together up until 1815. So it was a warfare campaign of, of, of coalition warfare that lasted until 1815 with intermittent briefs, obviously, but they, they were there. And so Alexander didn't go home for almost two years back to, to Russia. And then even then, in 1815, they did not go away after Waterloo. They had to conquer Paris again, and then they stayed in Paris and they made there their headquarters. And the interesting thing is that Britain, which was so much in a very singular position before, and as Jacqueline so aptly described, Britain then became the kind of, um, how do you say it, uh, the Drehscheibe, the Germans call, call it, the turning table of all these allied interests, and the headquarters of this allied council was the British embassy. It was quite close by to, uh, for example, where Tsar Alexander was lodged, but still it was the British headquarters with the embassy, which became the, the, the theater of negotiations. And they discussed things with each other from the 9th of July, 1815 onwards, almost daily. And only uh, after, in, in 1816, they, they scaled back those meetings to twice, to bi-weekly meetings. And these meetings lasted until late 1818, which meant that 
contrary to all these huge uh, arrangements and uh, state banquets that took place in the early modern era, if you, if you, for example, count the number of meetings where state leaders and representatives met since the Congress uh, of Munich, 1648, then it's, it's perhaps six, seven, eight meetings of the kind. And then from 1815 onwards, well, already starting with this horseback diplomacy in 1813, but then officially from 1815 onwards, when this peace uh, treaty was signed, they met almost every day, which was a great means of building trust, of creating networks, of creating institutions and even norms to discuss international relations with each other. And this was also the, the place where they, after the war had been fought, they were now discussing you could say the peace aims. So for how long a period should they stay on in France with a huge army of occupation? Again, one and a half million troops, can you imagine? Two thirds of the French territory was occupied. It's like Germany, 1945. I mean, it's an awkward uh, comparison, but just to give you a sense of, of idea, two thirds of the French territory was occupied, divided in zones, occupation zones, with the Duke of Wellington, uh, appointed by all the state leaders as the commander of the joint allied occupation army and then and this is also very interesting this unity that you were just discussing was translated into four main peace calls political peace calls the first goal was demilitarize the french the second goal was debonapartize the french so that a Napoleon or a Napoleonide or anyone associated with the family of the Napoleons would never come to power again, then stabilize the country, and then in the end also create dédommagements, making them pay, repairment. So there was also a distinctly financial aspect to creating this peace. It had to be paid for with money by the French themselves. So they had to furnish the Allied occupation uh, army with all the goods that they needed, but they also had to pay for all the expenses lost during this last campaign. And this really brought the Allied powers together. And, and this is also very much the doing of Wellington and Castore as personalities. Obviously, as Jacqueline uh, already explained, England had its war goals already met and it was very succinct in uh, keeping out all the Atlantic and the maritime aspects, almost all of them, out of the Vienna Treaty. But in Europe they could play the role of the honest broker, but they did so also through the leadership style of Castlereagh and Wellington together, who stayed on in the continent. Even although the, the parliament in, in, in London became increasingly protesting and they wanted to hear more about what was going on and uh, what were they doing there. And uh, there were already quite some anti-European sentiments going on in, in, in England at the time. But Castlereagh and Wellington, they were very much into this, this European alliance and they managed to secure the, the main treaty. And again, I already told you there was this treaty of 25th of March, 1815. Then there is this, this, this very famous Vienna Treaty. But then again, two other treaties need to be mentioned here as well. These are the, the two treaties that were concluded on the 20th of November, 1815. And they are perhaps even more uh, fundamental and foundational for the, the concept of Europe, uh, how it devolved uh, after that. First, the treaty is the 20th November 1815 treaty of the Quadruple Alliance. Again, a kind of a NATO-like treaty with an Article 5 of joint solidarity. And then the other treaty is, was the Repairments Treaty. And it dictated that France had to pay a sum which was even larger. I did not do the maths and the calculations as Jacqueline did this morning. I should have done, I'm sorry. But, uh, but I'm, I, I wrote all about this down in my book and I can quote from that, but it's more, relatively speaking, than the Germans were dictated to pay after 1918. And again, uh, um, they were quite, they were much more smarter in 1815 than they were in 1918. They promised each other, we're not going away. We will occupy the territory of France until they paid, which was a great incentive for the French people to actually do all the paying, which was a whole story on its own. And uh, I've written quite a heavy chapter on that as well, but the French paid in the end, which also meant that they were all in it together financially, which is also always a great in incentive to create a lasting peace. Wow. 
Just, just wow. First of all, Jeff, did you want to come back on anything? On that? I, I'm, I, I, uh, as you say, wow, that's a, uh, um, I, I didn't, I don't have this level of detail for uh, <laughs> the post-war period, and that's just um, amazing. So thank you for that. I've, I've, I've learned quite a lot. <laughs> Now, you, you invited me to indulge in, in, in this period, which I have spent four years of my time on right now. So I'm, I'm so sorry if I'm too enthusiastic about this, but it's such a great period. It's so rich. It's fantastic. This is exactly why I wanted you both on for exactly this kind of thing. Absolutely fabulous. I've, um, I've got a, um, a friend of mine, I'd, uh, you, you may know him, Nathaniel Jarrett, um, has uh, um, a couple of years ago wrote a thesis on Kit's um, foreign policy in the 1790s um, and uh, his argument was based essentially that the um, pitch was starting to look towards this collective security thing in the future. Um, I don't know if you've read that, it's, it's, it's very very good um, and I think it would knit quite well with, <laughs> with uh, your research if you haven't. Um, yes, uh, thank you so much. I, I've come across this and it's it's actually really, really uh, uh, insightful and also very important because uh, Castoray was the one who very much channeled these pit plans that Jared wrote about. And uh, what Pitt did in 1805 and then Castoray re this plan in 1815 and he sent it to Tsar Alexander and they both of them embraced the plan and this is actually very much also one of the founding documents for this Allied Council because what Pitt did was quite daring. He, he drew an, an, a kind of, of design for a world order, a global order. Obviously it was mostly Europe, but it was still considered by Pitt as a design for a global order. It was very much imperial, uh, inf in, informed and infused, obviously. And he said, well, there need to be first-rank powers, most notably, obviously, uh, the, the United Kingdom, but then also Prussia, uh, Russia, and Austria, and France would be part of it if it would start to behave again. So it was kind of a great power in limbo, but it was still counted amongst the first rank powers uh, uh, on the condition that Napoleon should, uh, would, would go. Then there were the second rank powers, the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, Portugal, but there were also third rank powers, and as Pitt says in his Pitt plan, well, they, they can be grateful uh, to exist at all. So um, they shouldn't <laughs> uh, really he wrote something of the kind, so they shouldn't they shouldn't pay any further considerations uh, as long as they should uh, be able to exist at all. They should be grateful to the greater powers. And this, this new world order had to be based on this quadruple alliance with France in a limbo that could be invited later on. And this is exactly how the things uh, were translated by Castoray in the main treaties and uh, upheld by Wellington and also the other, and Russian, the Prussian and the Austrian leader. So well, where the Vienna Congress is still very much an assembly of far more countries, eight uh, are the signatories of the uh, final uh, Treaty of Vienna, but there are others invited to that as well. But this quadruple alliance, it's only the four of them. And what they are doing is making this well, this triumvirate of, of four countries that rule Europe and beyond. So it's not just Europe, it's also their colonies, it's also the Latin Americas, it's, it's even, it's also dealing with the Ottoman Empire. So it was quite ambitious and Pitt set this up and this was very much the basis of the plans in 1815. I'm, I'm going to ask something a little bit kind of controversial in terms of Napoleon and how people think of him. Um, and rewind here to when he comes back from Elba in early 1815. Napoleon tries to position himself as a man of peace in those early days, making, making it quite clear in his communications to um, the, the European leaders that he doesn't want war. And that becomes quite a, a key element in, in that ongoing debate of whether Napoleon was or was not somebody who actively courted the idea of war in order to further his aims. What's your take on the situation in 1815 and whether or not those claims were genuine? <laughs> um, oh gosh, you've just opened an enormous pit. Um, <laughs> um, I, personally, I don't know whether it's possible to say. Um, I don't think he can possibly have expected everyone to welcome him with open arms. He must have been expecting war. Um, I suppose it was a good 
line for him to take politically speaking because if war was inevitable then it's a good thing to start off by saying that you don't want it um which therefore makes automatically everyone the aggressor um uh, i don't know quite how i i suppose um that the powers could have called his bluff but um <sighs> I don't know. It's very, it's very difficult to speculate um, because, of course, this didn't happen, um, <laughs> and there was war. And um, you can certainly argue that, uh, as as I have personally heard many people do, um, that the European powers were in the wrong for going to war against Napoleon. That I'm not entirely sure that's a tenable position because given their diplomatic um, situation, um, their avowed aims um, and everything that had passed for the last 22 years, they couldn't really have done anything else. Um, so I, I I'm gonna sit on the fence on this one. <laughs> I don't know what it, uh, how much it proves about Napoleon in 1815. Um, I think we would only know that if he'd actually managed to negotiate with anyone and he didn't. I don't know, maybe Beatrice has a different take. Well, this is, this is really a, a, a very interesting uh, speculative uh, topic to discuss. If we stick to the facts, I could, I think, add two things to this, this debate, things that have already been said in the past by many other people, but it's still interesting to stress there was a secret attempt to negotiate and there was a secret attempt by Napoleon to find an exit but it didn't take place in 1815 it took place in 1813. In June 1813 he had this very famous or infamous eight-hour meeting with uh, Chancellor Metternich in Dresden and uh, then again after the Battle of Leipzig, so where Napoleon had been defeated uh, with a very crushing defeat, Metternich sort of outsmarted his other allies and went to Frankfurt. Later on, he tried to explain to his allies, well, I just wanted to hear what Napoleon had to say. But historians say that, that Metternich was still playing with the idea of making a separate peace with Napoleon. And uh, we're discussing the Frankfurt proposals. Uh, and in, that, in those proposals, which, which Austria would have supported had Napoleon embraced them, it would mean that Napoleon would remain on as an emperor of France, but that France would be reduced to what the French claimed as France's natural borders, the Pyrenees, the Alps, the Rhine. And France would still control, retain control of Belgium, Savoy and the Rhineland, the West Bank at least, but had to give up Spain, Poland, the Netherlands, Italy and Germany east of the Rhine. This is obviously uh, the play that, that Metternich was playing. He wanted to have Italy and he wanted to let go of the Netherlands. So they had already discussed these, these plans in Dresden and did it again in November. And Metternich told Napoleon these were the best terms that he was likely to get, that further victories of the Allies would make these terms harsher and even untenable in the end. And I think this was the, 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 last, the last stage where Napoleon could have accepted the Frankfurt proposals. And, and to me, the fact that Napoleon did not accept the proposals proposals fought on until April uh, 1814 and then came even came back after Elba it meant that, that he was never really serious in, in wanting to accept Metternich's proposals he couldn't anymore this this is the one factual part the other factual part is this is also I think an underestimated factor in the discussions uh, of great power politics in 1815 um, it's still an very it, it's still a restorative age we are not we're not yet in the age of democracies obviously still what the populists thought and felt how they reacted populist sentiment was a factor in uh, the decision making by, by the allied powers the first thing wellington did when he came in paris was set up an allied intelligence service and the prussians already had intelligence services the austrians too the british by the way as well and they were collecting fausse nouvelles fake news they really called it post nouvelle it's, it's really true and i have all all these reports of post nouvelle and they were they were listening very carefully into the population into societies what do they think and on the one hand people were totally war wary even the french were very much war wary 
obviously that, that, that it, it was different in different parts of France, but for the most of the part they were war wary. And on the other hand, there were still very much uh, pockets of resistance, red revolutionary resi uh, resistance, but also white revolu revolutionary reactionary resistance. And the Allied powers were very much afraid that Napoleon would further polarize and, uh, and create incendiary situations for the whole of Europe. So they wanted to contain him and they did not want to bring him back into the saddle or allow him any kind of, of tenure because they felt that it would only exacerbate these already existing, on the one hand, these, these fears, and on the other hand, these, these revolutionary incendiary uh, moments in, in European in history. They wanted to bring peace and stabilization. They wanted to debonapartize Europe. And I think this is one of the obstacles that, that would make it, for, from the Allied point of view, impossible to give Napoleon another chance. We've talked a lot about the, the situation prior to Waterloo. What for you, what for you both did Waterloo change in terms of the, of the political aims for different coalition powers? Do you feel that Prussia and Britain gained greater leverage at the negotiating table for having played the key role in defeating Napoleon for the final time? Um, yes, I think so, because uh, the year before it was Tsar Alexander who was the first one who uh, rode into France on his white mare. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was a mare, sorry, but a white, a white uh, horse and uh, was very much heralded in like, like he was the king of France. And so now it wasn't uh, Tsar Alexander who dealt out um, uh, the, the shares in Paris and who was very tolerant to the French when he, when he entered 1814. It was now Wellington and Blücher. And they were a very interesting pair because Blücher wanted revenge. And he even said so when he, when, uh, he was very cross with Wellington. And Wellington did not allow him uh, to shoot point blank. Uh, Napoleon when he caught him and he said well you can be magnanimous you're British you won everything you had but mm -hmm. Napoleon scorched our earths he, he terrorized the population we cannot go home without the scope of Napoleon sort of and uh, then then Wellington promised him that he would get his share and Blücher was very much with a feeling that, that he had a great resentment against Wellington and against the Brits. He felt that the Prussian victory was being stolen by the British. And it took all of the diplomatic um, efforts by, by Hardenberg, the Chancellor of Prussia, to moderate and to tame down the voices of, of, of the military, the Prussian military. Was, and they were quite upset. They thought that they had scored their victory on the, on the battlefield of, of Waterloo, but instead they had to listen to the diplomats. And they were not very happy with that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah, that was um, quite a um, a bit of a diplomatic fracas. Um, but I had to say that Waterloo was a massive diplomatic uh, significance to Britain um, because uh, while Britain had definitely been a major player in 1814, um, special interests meant that she remained somewhat distanced from the continental powers. Um, uh, who were all sort of focused on territorial disputes, um, which Britain had no stake in, um, and also suspected her motives. Um, so uh, Britain's claim to influence the peace process had been based on her military presence on French soil and the fact that she'd been paying the Allies so much money for so long. Um, and this definitely changed after Waterloo. Um, on the 19th of June, 1815, nobody could doubt Britain was a major, major player, politically, diplomatically, or militarily. Um, and of course, historians with a more pan-European focus might dispute the decisive nature of Waterloo battle itself. Um, Tim Blanning uh, wrote that Napoleon's escape from Elba, quote, has received excessive attention because of the dramatic way it ended at Waterloo, but it was really nothing more than a coda marked diminuendo. Um, I'm not going to discuss that in too much detail, but um, for Britain, uh, Waterloo was the decisive battle. Um, uh, Wellington had been in command. I'm not going to go into the uh, dispute over how much was Wellington, how much was Blucher, but um, the army that won was partly British, partly Hanoverian troops, therefore very squarely forced third. Um, that was enough. Uh, simply put, Waterloo meant that Britain, through her diplomatic representatives, Lord Carthway and the Duke of Wellington, were able to ensure the final peace largely confirmed the 1814 Treaty of Paris and reflected British as well as more generally European priorities.
And Waterloo ends up being used in different ways by different countries as it becomes absorbed into their national narratives. Uh, and of course the myth-making. Jacqueline, how was Waterloo politicised in the UK? Heavily so. Um, I mean, as I said just now, the importance of the battle can be exaggerated. I mean, uh, for example, the blurb of one of the books I looked at described it as the greatest battle of all time, which is surely over-egging it a little bit. Um, but for Britain, it was probably the most significant event of the 22-year war. Um, um, for much of those 22 years, Britain hadn't been able to field armies anywhere in Europe for very long, certainly with a notable exception of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, Waterloo seemed to confirm what the Peninsula War had suggested, that the British army was capable of defeating Napoleon himself. Um, and of course, when Napoleon subsequently surrendered to the captain of the HMS Bellerophon, this um, set the CEO on a growing sense of national pride. Um, it didn't hurt that Waterloo took place at a time when, when Britain was quite strongly divided already. Um, the union with Scotland was only 100 years old. The Highland clearances were still just about within living memory. Ireland had rebelled in 1798, not part of Britain, the United Kingdom, but you get what I mean, um, and in fact had been forced into union in 1801. Um, the British army that had beaten Napoleon had representatives from all of the countries of the United Kingdom, Wellington himself technically Irish, um, lots of Scottish, Welsh soldiers, um, Irishmen, um, so that helped a lot. Um, Britain was also so socially divided um, due to the usual economic strains of war, but also partly due to its monarchical aristocratic political basis and the tension with growing industrialization. Um, so there'd been threat of revolution in the 1790s, um, as recently as 1812, there'd been troops deployed to defeat the Luddite um, uh, rebellions. Um, there were immediate economic effects of demobilization and retrenchment post-war, um, but Waterloo ended Napoleon's meritocratic message and uh, definitively put a lid on French republicanism, um, which had been kind of dead for quite a long time, but uh, um, this pretty much put an end to it. Confirm the status quo. Um, and I'm going to quote a line from Linda Colley, which um, uh, always makes me giggle when I read it, um, which is, Waterloo made the world safe for gentlemen again. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, not everyone agreed with this perspective, and many Britons were devastated by Waterloo. Um, in fact, uh, Sir Samuel Whitbread, um, the leading Whig opposition orator, may have committed suicide as a result of it. Um, and uh, there were quite a few, few people who felt the battle had stifled rather than confirmed political liberty. Um, this was a fairly extreme point of view, but it was held by many, um, in a, particularly in a Britain which uh, had be, been ruthlessly um, repressing political dissent and would continue to do so um, for the next few years. Um, and I, I would also like to add here, and I'm going to get completely smashed for saying this, um, that uh, Waterloo, although it had unde undeniably global repercussions um, for Britain, it wasn't probably the most important battle of the wars for Britons. Um, those laurels, I think, probably went to Trafalgar. Um, and I'm now going to get steamrollers, and I can't believe I just said that, but there you go. Um, <laughs> um, part, um, Trafalgar was a much less divisive um, battle to use, politically speaking. Um, Britain was still rather ambivalent about the military in 1815, um, particularly after the Luddite um, uh, experience um, and of course four years later there would be Peterloo which would um, uh, reinforce that um, suspicion and of course Wellington also refused to quote do a Nelson and die on the field of victory um, so he later become a, became a Tory Prime Minister um, and his stand against parliamentary reform gained him considerable hatred even if it was only temporary um, so uh, that's that's my point of view and I'm going to stick to <laughs> I can totally agree with you there, Jacqueline. I think that the actually military value of Waterloo was not as big as the political uh, value of Waterloo for the European alliance. And then again in Britain, it was far more uh, of a remembrance culture that became quite divisive and uh, polarizing uh, only a couple of years later, uh, doing a Nelson, that, that's a nice one too. Um, the thing is, he, he might have become a figurehead for... for um, uh, scoldings and, and outrage in, 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 in England, but in Europe, 
for the many countries that were part of the alliance, Wellington, as a representative for, for, for the UK, remained a hero, bigger than life. And uh, he was, for example, given all kinds of, of titles and batons. Um, he was made field marshal of the Austrian army, the Hanoverian army, the army of the Netherlands, the Portuguese army, the Prussian army, the Russian army, and the Spanish army. And these mm -hmm. were not just military titles given on the battlefield, but it was very much also for the Europeans a way out of their constant uh, uh, polarizing, uh, fighting wars against each other. It was also very much uh, their way out of these, these constant wars with France. So for them, sort of uh, heaving the UK and, and Wellington up to this status helped them in closing their ranks, at least until the war in the Crimea. So I think it was very much of a political, international political symbolic value for the other European powers to have this culture of, well of Waterloo and the culture of Wellington tied to it uh, remain intact. That being said, uh, coming from the Netherlands, I've also uh, something to say on, on the Wellington culture. <laughs> because the, the, the Wellington himself, the Iron Duke, who was made the Prince of Waterloo by the King of the Netherlands, he completely forgot or uh, omitted out of his, his um, uh, narrative of the battles the role of the Dutch, the role of the Crown Prince of the Netherlands. He totally did not mention <laughs> Uh, the fact that, that the Battle of Waterloo was also won due to the Dutch, the Belgian, the Nassovian, and yes, also the Prussian armies. And uh, Wellington's own account of the affairs does not mention that it was the Dutch, the Belgian, and Nassau armies who held the French at bay at Quatre Bras, for example. He, d he doesn't even mention this. And then what, then Wellington's position is, is copied by uh, the very uh, infamous historian William Siburn, who wrote this, this, this magnum opus, History of the War in France and Belgium in 1844. And Cyborn even goes one step further and he dismisses the Dutch and the Belg Belgians as deserters. And what? he scolds the Prince of Orange as incompetent and inexperienced. And this since then has been accepted as the truth by all kinds of British historians. And even Jack Weller in his 1992 book, Wellington at Waterloo, he still rehearses this urban myth. And, the, and it, the poor Dutch, the poor Dutch, who they even tried to send a military historian in the 19th century over to Britain, uh, the Dutch Lieutenant General uh, military historian W.J. Knoop, and he tried to object to Siburn's account and he tried to show that the Dutch were there as well, and the Soviets and the Prussians as well, but no one really listened. It only took uh, uh, 100 years later until for example, Jeremy Black's The Battle of Waterloo or Alan Forrest's Waterloo. And they are a little bit more nuanced, but still the Dutch are missing in the picture. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Jacqueline, the first historian of you is finally admitting to, to this, 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 this lack in historiography. <laughs> this is the whole reason behind the Waterloo remembered um, interviews that I've deliberately been trying to to push the fact that this isn't a British victory and that we need to refer to Wellington's army first of all as an Anglo-Dutch army not a British army but that we also need to think about the role of the Dutch the Prussians Brunswickers uh, King's German Legion and um, so I'm really glad that you raised that and if people listening want to hear Wellington's original account of Waterloo his his military dispatch that's going to be aired tomorrow morning uh, as the first installment of the last day of Voices from the Battlefield. One thing that I'm curious about, Beatrice, is, is how does the politicisation of Waterloo in the Netherlands compare to what happens in the UK? Ah, that, that's a very interesting question. Thank you. Um, um, and and I, I try to, to deal with, address that question myself as well. And, and I've just published an article on this in a, a German uh, a book on 1815 Remembrances. And I went through all these newspaper clippings and the pamphlets of the time. And I found that there are actually three historical places, Lieu de Memoir, that compete for attention in the way the Dutch political culture uh, developed after 1815. The first is Scheveningen. Scheveningen is the place uh, where on the 28th of November 1813, the King of the Netherlands landed after coming back from his exile in 
England, in London. So he landed, took over, and was uh, invited by the citizens of the Netherlands and the notables of the Netherlands to become the sovereign prince again. So the landing in Scheveningen on the 28th of November 1813 is very much of a foundative uh, moment in Dutch history. Uh, and, and in 2013, this was the bicentennial of this was celebrated, and the whole landing was um, uh, orchestrated all over again, but this time with helicopters and planes, uh, <laughs> which was totally ridiculous because they, they had this actor playing King William in his in his in his wooden boat, and then over uh, uh, over his head, those those planes were roaring through the sky, which was completely inaccurate, ahistorical, etc. So it's Scheveningen on the one hand, then it's Vienna, because King William himself was very much attached to Vienna, because the concert of Europe gave him his kingdom back. They were the ones, England, but also the Congress of Vienna, that restored to him, and uh, in Vienna, he was actually, so he was already there in 1813, but only in March 1815, he was crowned, uh, he was named the King of the Netherlands, and he was crowned in September 1815, with the support of all the other crowns heads of Europe. So Vienna is also very much constitutive to the Dutch formation of the new uh, United Kingdom with Belgium. And there are many memorial arches in the Netherlands pointing to Vienna. And then there is Waterloo. And Waterloo had it in it to remain the main site of Dutch cultural remembrance, but it became very problematic from the beginning because a kind of a feud broke out between King William I and his son, the crown prince, the aide-de-camp of, of Wellington himself, and uh, his son, the later King William II, he really suffered quite an, um, uh, qu quite some, some slaying on the battlefield of, of Waterloo, and it was also internalized in a famous painting by Pienemann in 1824, and uh, the crown prince is also elevated in, in a portrait in Apsley House by Wellington, so kind of a feud broke out between the two men, and there were even rumors that later on, the 20s, the 30s, 40s, that King William, the crown prince William II would take over from his father, so Waterloo became a kind of a, yeah, an, a, a battle for William II to hit his father over the head because he said, I have blood on the battlefield and you haven't. I was the one who helped Wellington, you didn't. And the other thing is in 1830, the Belgians ran amok and uh, they went away. So the Dutch lost the battlefield. It was part of the Netherlands and they created, William was, was busy creating a, a huge mount, the Lion Mount, it's still called, it's still there, you know all about it, and they lost it to Belgium. And uh, for the king this was a great loss and he never wanted to discuss it all over again. Uh, he had made the 18th of June 1815 the Dutch National Anniversary Day. It was a free day for all citizens to enjoy and it stayed on until 1940 as uh, our national uh, kind of the 4th of July day, and then only after 1945 it was changed into Queen's Day. So Waterloo was important, it was celebrated, but it was quite early lost by the loss of Belgium and also by this feat that broke out between the, 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 the within the royal family. So it was kind of a tragic remembrance, more or less. And Wellington was not very happy with this whole remembrance culture in the Netherlands uh, uh, either. And he told the Dutch king that with this lion mount, it was created on uh, the battlefield of, of uh, Waterloo, he ruined his battlefield, he told the king of the Netherlands. One of the discussions that I quite often end up being drawn into is the extent to which these conflicts were about competition between empires. And I personally tend to argue that the Peninsula War wasn't first and foremost about empire. Waterloo is a different situation though. Do you, Jacqueline, see this as a clash of empires or something else? That's a fascinating question. Um, and one I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I think it depends on whether you look at Waterloo as a battle in isolation or whether you see it as a full stop in a long war between powers that were in the process of building empires. Um, I don't think Waterloo was explicitly an imperialist battle. Um, as Christopher Hall has pointed out, Waterloo was absolutely in step with Britain's war aims as laid down all the way back in 1793. Um, French incursions into Flanders and the Netherlands had been the reason Britain had entered the war in the first place. Um, this obviously reflected Britain's desire to control trade in the seas, but a lot of it was just about the proximity of the area to British soil and the ease with which invasions could be launched to just about any part of the British Isles. Um, 
And taking a, a longer view, um, seeing Waterloo as the last in a chain of events spanning 22 years, uh, my answer does change a little. Um, I don't think there can be any doubt that the power that emerged from the Napoleonic Wars with the most overseas territories was Britain. Um, Boyd Hilton has pointed out that, out that in 1792 Britain had 26 colonies and uh, by 1816 she had 43. Um, I haven't checked those numbers precisely, I'm going to trust Boyd Hilton on this one, but um, it's certainly a striking comparison. Um, Alexander Mekaberidze, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name, I apologise if I just mangled it terribly, has recently published a massive tome entitled Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, um, in which he argues that the wars, I quote, uh, had far greater long-term impact overseas than within the European continent itself. Um, this was certainly true for Britain, which found it difficult to intervene militarily on the continent and often attack the colonies of, of her enemies when she couldn't do anything else. How much of that was deliberate expansion, though, and how much was driven by the circumstances under which Britain fought the war? Um, there's one school of thought that argues that the British war experience was explicitly global and not European from 1798 onwards. Um, conversely, um, Paul Schroeder and his transformation of Europe argues that Britain wasn't able to make a significant impact uh, on the continent until she um, began to think like a continental power, and that she didn't really start doing this until 1812 or 1813. I don't really agree with either of them. <laughs> Um, Britain was certainly going to defend what she had um, and entered and left the war as a maritime power with strategic stations around the globe. Um, but one of the things that struck me when I was researching my PhD thesis in the Dark Ages was um, how late British politicians were still using the term British Empire to describe England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. Um, they were certainly doing it um, by about 1810. I'm not sure whether they were still doing it in 1815, but they were doing it quite late into the war. Um, so you have people like Chris, Chris Bailey um, speaking of an imperialist mentality developing in Britain by, <clears throat> by the 1830s, and uh, the wars with France definitely galvanised that. Um, but I don't think Britain's war aims were necessarily imperialist in nature. Um, they focused on the continent, um, so reducing France's borders, getting her out of the Netherlands, restoring equilibrium in Europe, effectively all, all the things we've been talking about um, already. Um, and that's why most of Britain's imperial expansion did occur when Britain couldn't make any impact in Europe. Um, it's also worth remembering, and I've made this point elsewhere, um, before um, that uh, the Treaty of Amiens in 1802, for all it was a truce, showed just how many conquests Britain was willing to give up when negotiating from a position of weakness. Um, and the two treaties of Paris, 1814 and 1815, which bartered away a great deal of Britain's overseas conquests, much to the chagrin of Britain's merchants, showed just how much she was willing to give up when she'd won. Um, and uh, going back to Mika Baridzo, because I love saying his name, um, he approaches the war from a global perspective, um, but he tacitly admits this continental um, uh, focus, um, because even in his last few chapters, including the ones on the Congress of Vienna and Waterloo, he only talks of the global context in the sense that various overseas conquests were laid on the negotiating table. What do you feel is Waterloo's most important legacy then? Um, well, from, from a British perspective, um, I've, I've already sung the praises of Trafalgar, so I have to admit that I think Britain was still more a naval nation in 1815 than anything else. Um, but uh, Waterloo definitely significantly helped rehabilitate the reputation of the British Army, um, even though that would suffer some future knocks over the next few years um, and due to the uh, suppression of rioting in Britain. Um, the wars against France hadn't exactly been an unmitigated success for British arms, um, but the later years of the Peninsula War had definitely altered that perspective and Waterloo pretty much set the seal on that transformation. Um, Britain was never going to be an explicitly martial nation. Um, Mike, Michael Brown, a med uh, medical historian, I think has uh, pointed out that Victorians, um, I quote, tended to keep the army at something of an imaginative distance. Um, but um, the British military spectacle, to quote Scott Miley, uh, was very much part of the 19th century uh, British experience and uh, this increased role of the military in British culture was uh, at least in part due to Waterloo. I think Waterloo was, was 
to the Netherlands, it was very important, at least in these first uh, two post-war decades. And then after 1830, it got watered down a bit. And uh, in the 20th century, there was no, not much remembrance of Waterloo anymore, certainly not after the Second World War. Uh, obviously, you have to bear in mind that the Netherlands were neutral during the First World War. So Waterloo remains their last big battle up until the Second World War. That's, that's important to stress. But I think on the, in the larger scheme of things, the main legacy of Waterloo for me would still, as a political historian, would still be the fact that it brought together these uh, troops, these states, uh, the, the alliance, the Seventh Alliance uh, coalition of, of all corners of Europe, and it brought them together in Paris. So they did not stop at the borders of France and went back as they did in 1830. They were only briefly there in Paris and they went home quite, quite early. But now this time in 1815, they stayed on they created this army of occupation, the Allied Council, and the, the Battle of Waterloo, where the British and the Germans fought uh, shoulder to shoulder to conquer France, was also the start of this new collective security regime, I would say. The, the, the moment where waging the peace, where at the moment where the battle ended, the waging of peace started. And I think that is where Waterloo is a very important turning point and also, also a foundational moment. You could even argue for Europe's military or even economic integration. It's perhaps an ambitious statement, but I would stick to that as well. So not the military, military important at all, or the cultural with this political integrative moment is I think very important to stress. And one final question from me. There's been a lot of interest on social media about myth-busting the battle. What do you both think is the biggest flaw or the most unhelpful myth that we have about the battle? I, I'm not sure. I'm, not, I'm entirely qualified to answer this question. Um, I, um, I, I, I know that you've already interviewed Gareth Glover, um, but I, I'm going to refer people to his uh, Waterloo Myth and Reality if they want a well-written informative reality check about the British experience at Waterloo. Um, from a purely selfish, this is my research area perspective, um, I'd say the most unhelpful thing about Waterloo is that it does obscure the degree to which the British experience of the Napoleonic Wars was about failure as much as it was about victory. Um, I mean, naturally enough, we Brits tend to talk about the uh, um, historical episodes that show us at our best. Um, and uh, if there were several hundred books in the English language published on Waterloo in 1815, uh, sorry, um, 2015, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> there are very, very few books published um, on the British experience of war in exactly the same theatre in the early 1790s. Um, that's partly because there's not so much of an audience for it. Um, but Waterloo can't really be understood in isolation um, as one day or even three days in history, as, as Beatrice has so ably <laughs> expressed, it goes forwards as well as backwards in time. It's, it's quite a significant um, uh, point. Yes, well, I think that's a very important point to, to, to make the failure parts that uh, are equally important for historical remembrance. For me, I think, um, what I didn't like quite so much about all the first about Waterloo was that it's brought down, boiled down to this heroic uh, dual match between Wellington and Napoleon. And that it's, that it's reduced, that history is reduced to, to these two larger than life men finding their fate on the battlefield. Um, I think Waterloo is, first of all, it's not just Waterloo, it's Waterloo and Quatre Bras. It's not just Wellington and Napoleon, it's Wellington and Napoleon and all these other commanders and allied uh, uh, generals and, and commanders as well. And then Waterloo is very much also a, a European turning point. So it's not just about Britain or about France, it's for Europe as a whole. So, and that's very, very difficult to, 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 to popularize in this fashion. But I think that's very important to keep that in mind, that it shouldn't be about those two men fighting for eternal glory with the one winning in the end. It's about the fate of Europe as a whole. Beatrice, Jacqueline, this has been an absolutely fantastic way to end our sequence of interviews. Thank you so much for joining me for Waterloo Remembered. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. That was Dr Jacqueline Reiter and Professor Beatrice de Graaf joining me to discuss the legacy of the Battle of Waterloo. Both Jacqueline's book, The Late Lord Chatham, and Beatrice's collected works are available to order online now. That may have been the last of the interviews from Waterloo Remembered, but the programme is by no means over. Not only can you continue to get involved in the discussion on social media and in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net, but we will still be releasing 
further content over the next two days. The Voices from the Battlefield series continues here on the Napoleon Assist, so stay tuned. The live tweets of what was happening right now in the Waterloo campaign 205 years ago continue on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. Tomorrow, the Voices from the Battlefield series continues and concludes, and we have a memorial service delivered by the Reverend Stephen Fletcher at 11am UK time, which you can attend via the Waterloo Association YouTube page. There is a link in the forum at the NapoleonicWars.net. And that's not all, because I've been working with Marcus Cribb on one final surprise tribute to the dead of Waterloo, so be sure to keep an eye out on the podcast for all of those things. I'll see you tomorrow, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Waterloo Remembered from The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.